Welcome back to The Q Files. In the second part of the Donner Dinner Party, we'll continue to tag along on the snowy trail with our unlucky pioneers. We'll share the rarely examined Native American perspective on this epic American tale, and finally, conclude our own dinner party with our Donner-inspired main dish and a little desperation pie. At the end of our last episode, we left the band of our desperate immigrants seeking relief, lost deep in the unrelenting blizzards that had covered the Sierra Nevada mountains in 20-foot snowdrifts. They called themselves the Forlorn Hope. They were out of food. They were dying. So, on Christmas Day, after almost nine days without sustenance, they succumbed to the only thing that could save them, eating each other. Specifically, four of their members who had died the night before, one of them a young boy of 12. While they had refused to murder any member of the group to save themselves, nature had provided. Only the two Native American Miwok Indians, Luis and Salvador, who had come back with Charles Stanton to assist them through the mountains, refused the roasted human flesh they were offered. Three more members would die within the next day, and they too were consumed. There were only nine members left. They were revived by the meat and decided to try and continue up the mountain, sometimes literally one foot at a time. Three days later, and the food had run out again. It is claimed that at that point, William Foster went insane from hunger. However, one has to wonder if these claims of insanity were not just an excuse, an alibi for what would come next just more historical forgiveness for the brutality of a white man. Foster announced that he was going to murder Luis and Salvador for food. William Eddy, the leader of the group, refused such a suggestion and vehemently tried to persuade Foster otherwise. But Foster was adamant, and some of the others started to agree with him. Eddy secretly notified Luis and Salvador about Foster's plan, and they stood for a moment in disbelief, and then slipped out of the camp quietly during the night, justifiably afraid that they would be the next meal. The party continued on, and after a day or so, they discovered two pair of bloody footprints and followed its trail. At its end, they found Louise and Salvador, side by side, laying in the snow, too weak to move. These two men, who had risked their own very lives so many times to save the party, were now almost dead. Nevertheless, William Foster took out a gun and shot them both unceremoniously in the head. The party ate a portion of the bodies and saved some to be parceled out as their journey progressed. Although the forlorn hope could never muster the heartlessness necessary to murder one of their own, in the end... One of them could kill the Native Americans. It might be remembered that these savages, as they were commonly known in the then-current American vernacular, were the only members of the party who refused to eat the human flesh. What strange savages indeed. And though almost dead, one would have expected the party, out of respect and decency, to have given their two loyal comrades some comfort in their last moments on Earth. Instead of the horrifying realization as they drew their last breaths that they were being murdered by those they considered friends, 
Only William Eddy refused to partake of this latest, very cruel meal. Ironically and horrifyingly enough, several days later, the forlorn Hope came upon a Miwok tribe who were initially so frightened by the appearance of the ghastly-looking pioneers that they ran off. But they returned and shared with the pioneers what little they had, soup of venison and acorns. Little did the Miwoks know that these seemingly grateful Americans, while eating their food, still had within their backpacks the dried flesh of their brethren, Salvador and Luis. William Eddy appealed to the Miwoks to assist him and guide him over the mountain. He would go alone to seek a rescue party and the rest of the group would stay behind. The odds of him making it to safety alone were much greater than traveling with the entire party. So, for a cost of a pouch of tobacco, Eddie headed across the mountain with his new Miwok guides. It must be said at this point that there are claims out there that state that the pioneers came across a Paiute tribe and not Miwoks. After research, this seems implausible because a portion of the Miwoks' homeland was indeed the Sierra Nevada Mountains. The Paiute were generally confined to the Great Salt Basin area of which the Donner Party had traveled through with such disastrous consequences. But there is, of course, the Native American version of this history, rarely told, especially that of the Paiute, and especially as it relates to William Eddy and James Reed. Sarah Winnemucca, in her autobiography, Life Among the Paiutes, written in 1883, relates that she was the granddaughter of Paiute Chief Truckee and claimed that he was comfortable with whites, and he had even served as a guide for Charles Fremont, an early explorer of the American West. Her father, Paiute Chief Winnemucca, however, was not, and Sarah says she spent most of her childhood with a great fear of the whites who traveled through their territory. Sarah, in a first-person account, states that on October 5th, as the Reed Donner Party was approaching the Humboldt River area, where her family had their camp, Two members of the party went out hunting for antelope and were fired upon, but not wounded, by Paiute arrows. Sarah proposes that these were warning shots that were meant to delay the pioneer wagon train long enough for the Paiutes to return to their camp and warn the women and children of the approach of white immigrants. They were unsure of the whites' intentions. Later that day, the Paiutes discovered that someone had found their large cachet of dried food saved for the winter and burned it to the ground. The last party to pass through the area was the Donner Reed Party. It was the tribe's belief that the two Donner Party members had indeed destroyed all of their winter supplies in retaliation for being fired upon. And historical evidence concludes, most likely, that it was William Eddy and James Reed who often went out together in front of the wagon train to hunt for game. As recounted in our previous episode, on October 12th, Paiutes fired upon the Donner Party, taking down 21 of their oxen, no doubt in retaliation. Some of the pioneers would later claim they could hear the laughter of the Paiutes echoing through the barren landscape as their oxen stumbled and died. It is fascinating that in so many presentations of the story of the Donner Party, this Paiute laughter is always mentioned. The burning of their winter supplies is not. And look, the truth of the matter is, 
The Paiutes could have wiped the Donner Party out on a whim, but they chose not to do so. They instead would let nature itself have the upper hand and decide the fate of those who destroyed their winter sustenance and left them to starve. Therefore, it must certainly be noted at this point that karma can be a bitch. But with the help of his Miwoks guides, William Eddy made it over the mountains to a ranch at the edge of the Sacramento Valley. A quickly organized rescue party reached the other six survivors on January 17th. Nine members had died along the way. It had taken the forlorn hope 33 days to make it to California. And the truth is, it was Native Americans who got them there. But as Eddie had stumbled into that isolated ranch in the valley, half dead and nearly out of his mind, he horrified his hosts with his hellish story of their camps of death in the mountains and how they had been forced to eat those that had died. The news spread like wildfire. By February 3rd, the story of the trapped Donner Party hit the newspapers and demanded that someone, anyone, send help. On January 10, 1847, the United States Marines had captured Los Angeles from the Mexicans. California, though unofficially, was now an American territory. And there were now plenty of able-bodied men readily available for exactly the kind of rescue mission for which the newspapers were begging. On February 5th, a small relief party headed up by Daniel Rhodes struggled up the California side of the Sierra Nevadas in search of the Donner Party. James Reed was just two days behind them. So what we're going to do first is, in the spirit of the Donner Party, yes. we have a little platter here of raw human. Raw human. Thank you, Black Market. <laughs> Well, you know, they say pork is the closest, but we didn't want to eat raw <laughs> pork, so raw beef tenderloin, here we come. You know, that is really good. And human can't be that different. I wouldn't think, I mean, it's like, it's sweet and oily. It's sweet and oily. I think, you know, as we talked before, I. I don't know that I would have a problem meeting humans, I would have a problem meeting a human I knew. As we said, I think that's why you don't name your farm animals. Yeah. You know, pet names. Well, but I think, I mean, once you start trying to break the, the taboo of, you know, going your entire life not eating people, and then suddenly and all of a sudden, you're doing it, like, I think you end up with, I don't know, you don't want to eat your friend. Yeah, you don't want to eat your friend. And, and the problem with the Donner Party is, particularly, taboo because they were eating people they knew. Um, they were eating people they had been on this trip with for six and seven months. So they were actually eating people they knew, which must be just morally, I think, such a much tougher issue, even if you are starving. Porkchop! Porkchop, come on. It's raccoon time. Come on. You got to come in. You're going to be a meal if you don't come in. Come on. That's a big mama raccoon out there. Come on. You don't want to be a meal. Come on. If it was cooked, I think it would be different. Hmm. I feel like it can eat more because it's not cooked. I don't know. This that is just like a big hamburger. To me. Yeah, it is. And I don't know. I usually get my meat rare anyway. 
truthfully when I get meat. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just that idea that, you know, you wonder with the Donners, like, they say pork is much more consistent with how human flesh is, but just for us to consider for a moment that, wow, you know? I want to know who said pork is more consistent. Is it like a, I don't know, just somebody looking at the makeup of what's in human and what's in pork and being like, well, these are more consistent. Or was it like someone in the Donner Party who was like, it tastes like pork. No, uh, interestingly enough, no one has said it tastes like chicken. Well, <laughs> surprisingly. So what do you think? Could you, could you eat a human? I, honest to God, like we said, let's remember we're starving. You know, it's been a long time since you've had food. Or your kids haven't had food. No, you're at your limit. I'm at my limit. And I bring you this bowl prepared. I let you take a bite. It's delicious. And then I tell you what it is. Do you keep eating? Yeah. And <laughs> I, honest to God, don't think I would have that much of a problem with it. I would, I'm going to say it again. I only have a problem with it if it was, if, if you tell me it's Betty. You know what I mean? Then, mm -hmm. then, you know, what I would hope to do would, was to not know. And so let's say even with a camp, let's say there's five people who had died last night. You know all of them, but you don't know which is which? Exactly. It's like the guy that has the, you know, the one bullet out of uh -huh. the firing, you know, squad. Nobody knows who actually fired that bullet. Um, I think I might be able to do it that way. But I'll tell you, if I were starving, I'd have no problem eating a stranger at all. Honestly, Sam, I I mean, not that I don't really... I'm not trying to trivialize, you know, what happened with the Donner Party. It was horrific. Um, and, you know, what they went through, but... Morally, I wouldn't have a problem with it because I'm being forced to this. It's survival. Um, I don't think the cosmos looks down on you when you try to survive. It's just yeah. what you do. No, I... Um, and you're dead anyway. I'm just eating the rest of my flesh. <laughs> and you know what? Here's part of it, too. We should start saying that's flesh. Flesh? I mean... You know, all these, these words, um, beef and, and pork and all this, we're eating flesh. It may not That's, be human flesh, but you know what? It is human-like flesh. Well, we, we create names for the, the flesh we eat that is different than the animal that it comes Absolutely. from. Absolutely. Beef is cow. Pork is pig. We, I mean, we, we really, truly try to remove ourselves from the idea that we're, like, consuming another creature. And I don't see the huge difference between eating a human and eating a cow. Uh -uh. Especially a human that's already died. We slaughter beef. Cows. I think cosmically, you know, it's absolutely fine to eat something that's died. But when you murder something to eat it or to be a product. You know, I was vegetarian 22 years for this reason. Now I'm a, you know... Butcher's intern, fishmonger. I mean, I'm just, you know. Completely but I, but I, I came to the conclusion that 
you know, I wanted to invest in local humane meat because people aren't going to stop eating meat. So I wanted to give my money right. to something that would make that better. But there's no denying that, that you're eating a creature in flesh. And I just don't think the jump to human is that. It's not, I mean, all we, and we briefly touched on this earlier when we were talking, but you know, there's like, there, there's a taboo around it, but like, I don't even really know where it comes from because it's not like we sit around when you're growing up and you're like, don't eat other people. Right. You know what I think it is partially, truthfully, when you think about this? As a human species, we only eat vegetarians. I mean... <laughs> I mean, think about it. So we, we, only eat we, just, we just start farming vegetarians? I'm just saying. The, 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 <laughs> I think part of the taboo is we're eating outside of our normal food. Cows are vegetarian. Pigs are vegetarian. Chickens are vegetarian. We eat all this. Deer are vegetarian. We only eat vegetarian animals. You know, we don't eat tiger and, you know, all those kind yeah. of things. They never did. So the truth of the matter is there is seems to be an involuntary taboo against eating carnivores, which humans fit into that. It's true. And I, I wonder if that is... I'm going to take a break to have a cigarette, would you mind? I actually, that sounds fantastic. I mean, there's nothing like a cigarette after some dead flesh. Raw dead uh -huh. flesh. We should have named it. We could have been like, after we ate Bob... <laughs> the forlorn hope may have made it to California, but there were 48 people still clinging to life at the camps they left behind, as January proved just as brutal as any month they had yet seen. The new year of 1847 had brought no joy, only misery and starvation. Their condition was, to put it mildly, in the words of party member Patrick Breen, a very low situation. In the Truckee camp were the members of the Breen, Graves, Reed, Murphy, Kiesberg, and Eddie families, who shared three dilapidated shanties with no windows, doors, but just a hole in one wall through which they could enter. The Alder Creek site, some six miles east of the Truckee camp, housed the Jacob and George Donner families. Although Jacob had already died and George was seriously ill from the infected wound in his hand, his wife, Tamson, tried to hold the family together scurrying across the dirt floor of the shanty, catching mice for supper, and even boiling the hides that they had put over their shelter to form a roof. Margaret Reed was watching helplessly as her 12-year-old daughter, Virginia, took a turn for the worse. Virginia herself clasped her weak hands together, closed her eyes, and turned her face to the heavens, making one last desperate plea to God to save her, promising that if she were to survive, and see her father again. She would become a Catholic. Margaret's other children, James, Peggy, and Thomas, were not doing much better. But so far, Margaret Reed, Tamsin Donner, and Peggy Breen had managed to keep all of their children alive. And miraculously enough, even as February broke brutal and unforgiving, still not one member of the Truckee or Alder Creek camps had yet resorted to eating the dead that so abundantly lay outside frozen in the snow, covered with care, in quilts. That would change. On February 19th, the first relief party headed by Daniel Rhodes reached the Truckee Lake. They searched the entire area and called out hearty hellos, 
but no sign of life could be found. And then, a woman crawled out of a hole in the snow. She looked to her rescuers with disbelief. She would say, Are you men from California, or are you from heaven? The rescuers could hardly believe their eyes and were stunned at the appearance of not only the dead bodies that lay in the snow, but more so of the walking dead bodies that gratefully greeted them. They had to organize the return trip quickly, but they could only take 24 of the stranded immigrants with them. If they took more, they would all likely die. The Breens and the Donners volunteered to stay behind. Margaret Reed made the agonizing decision that she and her two children, Virginia and James, would go with the party, leaving her eight-year-old daughter, Peggy, to care for their three-year-old, Thomas, who could never make it through the snow. Peggy herself consented, telling her anguished mother, Well, Ma, if you never see me again, do the best you can. The Rhodes Relief Party set out towards California, leaving 31 people behind. 31 people who had nothing. Patrick Breen, who kept a diary of his struggle at the Truckee Lake, documented their own decision, like that of the Forlorn Hope, to surrender to the terrible. The simplicity of his statement makes it all the more devastating. On February 26th, he wrote, Mrs. Murphy said she thought she would commence on Milt and eat him. It is distressing. It had begun. Three days later, as Margaret Reed was climbing up the mountain with her children, she heard a familiar voice call out from the thick, foggy distance. She paused for a moment, shocked, and then fell to the ground on her knees, nearly fainting. It was her husband, James Reed, who had returned with his own relief party. Both James and Margaret had assumed the other dead. James leapt from his horse, stumbled through the deep snow, and grabbed his wife and then his two children, holding them close, feeling the welcome warmth of their bodies and the wetness of their cold tears. And then he pulled away and looked at Margaret, grief-stricken. Where were Peggy and Thomas? After convincing Margaret and her two children to continue across the mountains, James Reed and his party reached the Truckee Lake and discovered that Peggy and Thomas were indeed still alive. But the rest of the camp was in shambles. Ten more had died, and amidst the cabins, there were the remaining survivors sitting in their dirty rags amongst fleshless bones and the remains of half-eaten bodies. He would later remark that they looked more like demons than human beings. The Reed Relief Party started back out with all of the survivors that could manage to stand. And although George was nearly dead, Tamsin Donner refused to leave his side, but sent along two of Jacob Donner's children. But two days out, the most fierce storm yet hit, and hit hard. They sat stranded for days in the snow without even a fire. There is where the third relief party found them. One of them would say, The picture of distress was shocking. They had consumed two children of Jacob Donner. Mrs. Greaves' body was lying there with almost all of the flesh cut away from her arms and limbs. 
Her breasts were cut off and her heart and liver were taken out. Her little child, 13 months old, sat at her side, one arm on the body of its mangled mother, sobbing bitterly. However, the third relief party gave the Reed Company enough food to get them across the mountains and then head to the Truckee Lake. Only seven people remained. George Donner, still alive, begged Tamsin to go with them, but she wouldn't. She would not leave her husband to die alone. The relief party would take out one more survivor and the Donner children. They would leave behind just Hampson and George Donner and Louis Kiesberg, who was too weak to travel. The fourth and final relief party was delayed a month by the ninth blizzard in a winter that was recorded as the worst in the history of the Sierra Nevadas. When they reached the camp, only Louis Kiesberg was alive. Tamsin Donner's body could not be found. After some time, Kiesberg admitted to eating her. By April 25th, all of the survivors of the Donner Party had been taken out of the mountains to safety, a little over a year from when they had started their trip out of Springfield, Illinois. Out of the 87 original members of the Reed Donner Party, 46 survived, 41 died. 22 men, including Luis and Salvador, five women, and 14 children. Of all the families, the Donner family suffered the most, losing four adults and four children. Only two of Tamsin and George Donner's children survived and were later adopted by a Swiss family. All of the Reed family would survive, and almost unbelievably, they were the only ones who did not ultimately eat human flesh. News of the story of the Donner Party exploded across the entire nation. All the diaries and the personal memories were published with the details of cannibalism on American soil. Consequently, immigration to California declined markedly, and Hastings' cutoff was all but forgotten. But in January of 1848, Gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill, and by 1849, nearly 100,000 immigrants had made their way to California, which in 1850 became the 31st state. Truckee Lake itself would become a popular tourist attraction and soon be known as Donner's Pass. Remnants of pottery and wooden shards from the Donner's winter cabins became valuable and highly sought-after souvenirs. Louis Kiesberg would be the only one who would speak publicly about the cannibalism that he and the party experienced. He would be reviled as a man-eater and a ghoul. Because of his outspoken tales of cannibalism, often mixed with bravado and sensationalism, Kiesberg was ultimately accused of murdering six of his fellow Donner Party members, including Tamsin, but was later acquitted on each count due to lack of evidence. But in true American fashion, in 1851, after the gold rush, he opened an inn and restaurant in Sacramento. The menu has not been saved for posterity. Virginia Reed kept her promise to God and did indeed become a Catholic. James Reed invested in real estate and gold and became one of San Jose's city leaders and most respected businessmen. He never spoke publicly of his immigrant experience. He also never moved again. After relocating to Yuma, Arizona during the Civil War, Lansford Hastings proposed a plan for the Confederacy to storm the state and make him governor. 
After that didn't work out, he attempted to start a colony of ex-Confederates in South America. He would write The Immigrant's Guide to Brazil, and no cutoffs were included. Some years later, Peggy Reed, who had stayed at the camp to save her three-year-old brother, would sign off in a letter to a friend with this prosaic advice. Don't take no cutoffs and hurry along as fast as you can. Wise words, even now. And even now, honestly, honestly, I'm just sitting here thinking about it. If I had known and I ate that, it was a guy named Bob, and he wasn't a political prisoner or didn't die in any other, you know what I'm saying. That's what we said earlier. He's humanely raised. A humanely, humanely raised organic. <laughs> right, he was a vegetarian. Um, I would have had no problem eating Bob. And now, it could be different when I'm faced with it in reality, but that really doesn't bother me. But I don't know Bob. Yeah, and that's what, I think that is the leap where it's like, it's fine to be like, oh yeah, I would eat it. But I also do think I would eat it. Like in this situation, I, you're like, okay, you're, I'm, it's this or die. Yes. And, and, and what wouldn't you do right. to stay alive, let alone eat human flesh? That's probably one of the easiest things to do. Right. Like the odds of you surviving are slim to none anyway. Right. So I, th I think maybe it starts removing some of those layers of like guilt and aversion because you're like, you, you have, there's just no, there, there's snow. Yes. You've eaten everything else. Yeah. I mean, you've eaten in your this. shoes and your shoelaces. Yeah, you, you ate the roof off your building. Yeah, that's right. And you know what I really think? And I think, you know, when that, those reports started coming out about what had happened, it was such a shock. Yes, it is. But I really think that cannibalism and, and, and that kind of, not necessarily a cultural cannibalism, there have been cultures right. that, 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 you know, embrace cannibalism, but a survival necessity cannibalism, mm -hmm. you know, I think it reminds us of what we really eat every day. You know, I, I really do. I think, you know, uh, it's that great Melville quote, you know. Right, right. I, I mean, what's... What's the difference between a, quad, a quadruped and a biped? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, because you know what? We, just like pork chop, 11-pound pork chop can be reduced to being one meal. One meal. Our physical body would only sustain another being for about eight hours. Right. That's all we're biologically worth. And, you know, all of evolution and all of natural selection has happened because someone ate somebody else. Yeah. Before they could reproduce. Yeah. And I think, like, we've lost contact with what it takes to get what we consume. Yeah. And that is... That's the problem. That's the problem. And it's easy. But, yeah. you know, it is cannibalism. <laughs> to bring it full circle, you're still eating something. It's mamma mammalian cam cannibalism. Mm -hmm. it, it, it really is. And why we put humans at that next, why that, why humans become taboo is really fascinating to me because, you know, we're, here we are mammals. I mean, it, what puts us so above, you know, the cow? Yeah. So I wonder if, and this, I, I just don't, haven't researched it, but um, if we go far enough back when there's other hominids, did they eat each other? Did they hunt each other? I don't, you know, even back to the Neanderthals and all of that. There doesn't seem to be any indication that they hunted each other, which is surprising to me. Excuse me. But I think it goes back to, we st 
very often eat vegetarian animals. It, thinks yeah. that it seems to be a biological imperative somehow. And I wonder if that is more, like, I mean, it, it could very well be a, a, a biological thing, but if it's something innate where it's like, you know, if the predator ate something bad and I eat that, I'm going to have the bad thing right. too. Right. But was there that much logic or just a natural aversion to... Well, I, I think, I mean, and this is like the, the cusp of DNA memory is what we're discovering, right? Yeah. But, you know, if after several generations, they were like, you know, some, we often get sick after eating wolves. Or bear. Or bear. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, did they just stop and, like, for whatever reason, like, we remember that? Yeah, yeah. I wonder. I really wonder about that. Or is it like how culture gets passed down, but it's just like the oldest piece of culture? Yeah. It's like, where did we, at what point did we decide? And of course other cultures, but even if you look across all of the cultures, most of the time they're eating vegetarian animals. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, was yeah. there- It's like, where, where, was there a moment where the, the, the human species decided either biologically or or you know logically because of safety and and illness we're only going to eat vegetarian animals right i mean and isn't that kind of like the idea of like kosher like these cleaner animals these cleaner cuts of meat yeah and you know what uh people don't often realize too it isn't always like this in practice but one of the original um notions of kosher was about cruelty. For example, that's why in a kosher kitchen you can't have the same, you know, like, you know, dairy and, and meat are separated because they never wanted the situation where a child was cooked in its own mother's milk. So a lot of the, the original kosher directives and laws were about cruelty, yeah, not just safety. I just, there's just so many rules about eating and what you can eat. And, um, I, and I think number one, and I've contemplated being, you know, vegetarian again. Um, I, I do, I think the number one thing I weigh when I decide to eat something is cruelty. You know, I became vegetarian for 22 years, not because of health reasons or anything else. It was animal cruelty. Yeah. So I'm not going to eat something that I know was... Poorly raised. Poorly and, raised, poorly handled. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that's kind of my taboo that I just won't. That, that goes from seafood to, you know, beef. Absolutely. Or buying it locally, know where it came from. Or, you know, my half hog in the freezer, yeah. I know where it came from. Um, you know, that, that's kind of my, you know, dividing line. But, you know, I'm, it's still cruel. It's killing them. But, you know, you can certainly reduce the suffering of an animal um, in raising it. That's the thing, like if, if we reduce the suffering, then we would eat less because it would be more expensive. And then it becomes a different circle that we're operating in. Well, and here's the freaking problem. The problem is that meat's too cheap. And that goes back yes. to, Ed, you know, um, uh, Meese with Nixon when they decided to make food cheap. And now we have all this, this really cheap food and it has really tricked us into believing that meat should be that cheap. You cannot produce good food that is humane and local at the same price as at freaking Kroger's. 
and you are not getting the same and you won't and you shouldn't. It should be that price because that's what it costs to raise that. And you know what? We'll spend all these money on our phones. We'll spend it on TVs, this and that. Why shouldn't we be willing to prioritize spending, you know, the most money out of our pockets a, a, a month for good food? Like right. that right. should be the freaking priority. Well, we, I mean, we've, we've developed a culture that largely, I guess, disagrees with that, you know? And they don't have, there's no, what are you comparing it to? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we've had generations of just really inexpensive meat products yes. and what, what should it cost? You know, should, should ground beef cost $4 a pound yeah. or should it cost $17 a yeah. pound? And you know, you see the $17 and you're like, well, that better taste fucking amazing. But the difference is, you know, the cow had a great life. It was it's humanely. Also humane. That's right. Yeah, like, it's not just the taste. Or the healthiness, it right. is the humanity, the humanity, the humaneness yeah. of, of how it was treated. That's, that is built into that price. And that's not something people can see or really care about. But here's the thing I ask. You're dying. I don't care from what. And an angel comes down. Okay. What, with most people, what wouldn't you do to stay alive? What is the one thing you would say... Oh, no, I'd rather die. I mean, what is the extent that people would go to? Think, think, and, and listeners, think about this. What wouldn't you do? Right. If the angel said, I'll tell you what. Yada, yada, yada. You do this, you'll stay alive. What is the one thing you would rather die than do? I think for a lot of folks, they would sit back and say, well, eat another human. No, I think it would be something like kill your child you know, something like that. It would be it would be causing some kind of moral harm, deadly harm to someone you love. I think that might be That's the it. only thing. I don't I don't think really in the in the mix of things, I think cannibalism is way down on the list of things you wouldn't do. So I think it would be more of that kind of a moral would would I eat human flesh to stay alive? Yes. Would I kill my child to stay alive? No. There's where I would draw the line. Would I kill my mother to stay alive? No. I wouldn't kill you to stay alive. I don't think I would kill anyone to stay alive. That would yeah. be the line. No. I, so eating the yeah. dead is very different than killing somebody. Yeah, and I, and I, I do get that. I, I, I think that there, there is definitely like a, a huge like hard line between like the murder and consumption rather than just the consumption. Yes, absolutely. And in researching this tale, we found some fascinating unknown history in the process. Let's talk a second about Abraham Lincoln and the Donner Party. <laughs> I was fascinated to learn that Abraham Lincoln was invited to go on the journey with the, the was it Donner Reed Party? Uh, Donner Reed Party, that by James Reed. I, so the night you sent me that article, I, me being the Lincoln freak I am, <laughs> I did not know that. And what's so fascinating is, <clears throat> so the Donner Party was named the Donner Party because of George Donner. However, the guy that really brought this party together, um, both Donner and James Reed, who really brought this yeah. together, were from Springfield, Illinois. Reed and Abraham Lincoln had fought in the Black Hawk War together. So you sent that to me and I was like, no way. <laughs> How have I never, ever heard this? So yes, yeah, so they were very good friends. James Reed became a, 
you know, very uh, wealthy uh, businessman in Springfield gets an itch to head to California, invites Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln always had this really this kind of obsession with California. As a matter of fact, one of the last things he said to Mary Lincoln on the day of his death, that, as we've talked before, of the what became the Lincoln funeral train mm -hmm. was really first built as a presidential viewing car to take Lincoln to California. Yeah. He always wanted to see California, but of course, um, Mary Todd Lincoln had already had one child who was three, was pregnant with another, and Mary Todd was like, you are not heading to California. So one has to wonder, I mean, wow, Abe might have just gotten eaten. And the way they knew this was, I think there's a letter from James Reed, mm -hmm. but um, James Reed still had the muster rolls in, in his possession because when James Reed left, um, he took his, all of his belongings. So he took all of his yeah. books and his papers. And there's Abraham Lincoln in the muster rolls of, of, you know, along with him. It's like, how did Abraham Lincoln's, that was the original interest was, how did Abraham Lincoln's name get connected right. to the Donner Party? Um, but you just think of that and the whimsy of fate and destiny and would Lincoln have stayed? Would he have gone with James Reed when he was banished? I wonder if there's like a Lincoln diary or a letter, something that is from like Lincoln describing like, there is well, a letter. thank God I didn't go. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, was I lucky. That was a good decision. Or would he have stood up to Reed and not let him take that cutoff that he took? Yeah, would, that, would, it, would, would there not that even be a story? Would that have changed the Donner Party? That, that's right, that's right, that's right. Because Lincoln was a man of caution um, and logic. It would seem to me that Lincoln would not have opted for the, you know, cutoff that saved them four weeks but ultimately doomed them. Full of um, warning signs. Yes, right. <laughs> Death to all who enter. Turn back. But I think we'll go anyway. We'll go anyway. Um, so you wonder if he would have had any effect um, because it is known Reed really respected and looked up to Lincoln. Um, so you wonder if that decision, you know, Lincoln's fate might have been instead of being president of the United States to save the Donner Party. And to end our Donner feast, we finish with what has come to be known as desperation pie. This one in particular being a vinegar pie. During the depression in the late 1930s and early 1940s, women made pies for their family with only the farm and pantry items they had on hand. Butter, eggs, sugar, milk, and vinegar. They were also known as make-do pies and they were served up to hungry families as a tasty treat in an otherwise very bleak dinner menu. Although few starved during the Depression, hunger and malnutrition affected many. And unbelievably enough, life expectancy for the average American actually increased during the years of the Depression. Maybe those desperation pies had something to do with it. Wow. That's good. So think in the depression what a treat this would have been. I mean, definitely. It's mm. nice, just smooth and sweet. And plain and sweet and... I mean, they definitely knew what they were doing. They did. This is sugar, eggs, and vinegar. That's all this is. Well, that's what the depression tastes like. <laughs>
Ultimately, the real story of the Donner Party is about consumption. But it wasn't just a story of the consumption of human beings by other human beings. It was the story of the voracious consumption of a young nation trying to devour all that stood in its way of manifest destiny. Or the belief that we as Americans are exceptional and that God had ordained that we should dominate. The phrase itself was coined by journalist John O'Sullivan in 1846, the very same year that saw the Donner Party start out on their doomed journey. They were the very tip of the spear for this new potent and deadly, yet oddly hypnotic idea. We as individuals and as a country have brutally devoured indigenous people, generations of African Americans, entire species of animals, natural resources, and the lands of other nations and tribes. Manifest Destiny itself is nothing less than political, ideological, economic, and ecological cannibalism, attesting to our insatiable appetite to conquer and profit from the victims of that one-sided contest. The story of the Donner Party gives us a unique glimpse into this harsh self-realization. Michael Wallace, author of The Best Land Under Heaven, The Donner Party in the Age of Manifest Destiny, has this to say. The words that ring out to me continually are two words that combined can be very fatal, then as now. And those words are ignorance and arrogance. Indeed, we still suffer from the greed and impatience of rich men and bulk at the indifference of those who would follow them. If nothing else, let the cautionary tale of the Donner Party remind us of that. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. We'd also like to thank our listener, Eric Johnson, for bringing our attention to the Diane Harrison article about the Paiutes and the Donner Party at California Native News, and for making us aware of the Sarah Winnemucca autobiography. It greatly informed us regarding the Native American perspective on the Donner Party, as we referenced in this episode. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends, be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q-Files.